Hey everybody, welcome back to No More Silos. My name is Erica and I am glad that you're here. This is my podcast on cultural Christianity. Here at No More Silos, what I'm focused on is helping us see that the silos of information that we receive in culture, in history, in our society, and in religion, our faith, uh, and Christianity in particular, um, cause us to miss opportunities to grow spiritually, cause us to miss opportunities to learn more because we have everything in silos of information. And so using that analogy, uh, today on the podcast, we are talking about St. Augustine. Why is it important to talk about St. Augustine? St. Augustine is one of the early church fathers. Uh, much of Western theology is based off of him um, and and the people who came before him, who were also African church fathers, a lot of the theology in the early church comes out of Africa, and what's important about that is we're not told that today. So there's a bunch of folks walking around thinking this is the white man's religion. Um, there's a bunch of folks right now who are fighting against history and telling the story. If you Google image, uh, do Google image search on St. Augustine, you will get some guy that looks like Santa Claus. And that's not actually how he probably looked. I mean, he was genuinely ethnically, um, I believe, Berber, Punic uh, background, uh, Phoenician background. And he, um, yeah, he was African. So he wasn't European. But you know, hey, uh, folks want to rewrite history, um, and I'm here to make sure that we talk about the real stuff, what's really going on. So this week on No More Silos, we're talking about St. Augustine's response to heresy in the 5th century, and that applies to how the church responds to false teaching today. I spend a lot of time in our Bible study at our church talking about or pointing out how in the letters, uh, we did a whole uh, month and a half maybe on the book of Jude, which is one page, and the whole thing starts off, Jude is writing, Jude's Jesus' brother, and he's writing to the church and he's saying, Hey, I wanted to send you a letter just encouraging you um, in the Lord and, 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 you know, saying you're doing great things. But I have to change what I was going to write about and talk to you about these false teachers that have snuck into your community. Why? Because they're causing problems. Why? Because they're telling half-truths. And so the interesting thing about false teaching and, and heretical views and heresy is that a lot of times it's based in truth or half-truth. Um, I was just talking with a friend uh, the other night, and because she was over here, of course, I had access to my collection of Bibles, and I, I, we were talking about women in the church and uh, the famous verse about wives submitting to your husbands. And there's a couple of things that are often taught that are a little half-truth, erroneous in that regard. Uh, one is, is and, and we're not going to get into a whole exegetical thing here, but I just want you to kind of visually look at the verse. The paragraph in most English translations, the paragraph that starts wives submit to your husbands isn't actually correct. It really starts the verse before where it talks about submitting to one another and so as we submit to Christ. And then it says wives as unto your husbands in the Greek. It doesn't say wives submit to your husbands in the Greek. And so our next episode, we're going to, talk, we're going to be talking about Bible translation. But I really just wanted to visually show her. I pulled the Greek copy of the Bible, um, my interlinear Greek 
Bible off the shelf. I grabbed one of the English translations. I think the one I used was the New King James Version. And I just showed where the paragraph breaks differ. And something as small as that can wreck your whole theology of what you think wives and husbands are supposed to be doing. So no more silos, right? Next, come back uh, next time I'm talking about translation. But what can we learn about how to respond to false teaching and heresy in the Western church today from Augustine's method of teaching in community, relationship, love, and soundly scriptural practice. And unfortunately, some of these same heresies that Augustine fought against have been revisited upon the church today. We're still seeing some of these things. Um, it, what's old is new, what's new is old, you know? So we're still talking about discipleship. This is still season two. Uh, we're still talking about making disciples this season. And I think think it's important when discipling or mentoring someone, another way to talk about discipling is really mentorship, um, our modern definition of mentorship, uh, is to help them see the depth of Christian history and how some of the crazy things going on now have actually happened before. And so it begs the question, what did they do in the first few hundred years of the church when there were false teachers. We see how that was addressed by Paul and by Jude and James in the New Testament scriptures. But how was it later? Because what we see in the first few hundred years in the juxtaposition of Christians uh, following Jesus, but in the context of the Roman Empire, which was polytheistic, syncretistic, um, there was a lot of uh, a lot of pagan the pagan activity that was going on was ingrained in the culture so much so that the Christians really kind of stood out in, a, in being against it. And for political and societal and even economic financial reasons, it didn't always work out well for them. And so here's Augustine uh, about three or four hundred years into Christianity um, and trying to form that out of or form his thoughts and his theology out of what's going on in the world around him. It's also important, though, to see our early church history when we're discipling others. It's important to point out that these were Africans. Um, And it's important to point out for black and brown people because we're told that we were enslaved by the Europeans so that it, that it was a benefit so that we could become Christian because that was, you know, was a, we were saving um, a big part of the um, age of discovery, the doctrine of discovery in the Catholic Church in the 14th and 15th centuries really revolved around the idea of this concept of European exceptionalism, European power, European superiority to other cultures around the world. And so people genuinely, it's false teaching here, genuinely believed that they were supposed to go out and make disciples, but like trash the other person's uh, beliefs and culture, and that they were subservient to them, and totally messed up the Great Commission. Um, they were to take over these lands, and uh, and because they, anyway, it's a whole other history lesson. Let me get back to Augustine here. So it's important to see that in church history, early church history, it involved Africans so much so that in Dr. Vince Bantu's book, A Multitude of Peoples, he notes that the word, the Latin word Africanus was synonymous with Christian. In that time period, it was completely normal that people who were Christian um, 
or looked at Christians from other cultures in the Mediterranean region saw them as African, like that that's where things were coming from. The earliest ecumenical councils that decided, confirmed, and affirmed major theological doctrines in the church were all in Africa. It all happened in Africa. In fact, the concept of the Trinity is in scripture, but the word Trinity in Latin was coined by an African church father, Tertullian. Or was it Origen? Might have been Origen. I might have that messed up. But so, and, and for that reason, I want to want you to take some time this week and look up some of the other African church fathers, Athanasius, Tertullian, Origen, Cyprian. I'll put links to their Wikipedia pages or another site um, in the show notes today. They made, they each made significant contributions to what and how we believe today, how we interpret scripture, how we respond to false teaching, and more. And that's why we're talking about Augustine today or Augustine. And it's unfortunate that many black and brown people today believe the lie that our theology comes from Europeans. It actually doesn't. Martin Luther's Reformation was heavily influenced by two things. The Ethiopian church, when he, uh, a tr- someone traveling from Ethiopia, uh, a priest, he was uh, encountered them and learned about how they, their theology um, and how they were doing church and Augustine of Hippo, Augustine of Hippo. So Luther was very influenced by the Ethiopian church's theology and Augustine of Hippo um, in how they read the scriptures, how they interpreted the scriptures. That informed the Reformation. And so a lot of us today as Protestants, Protestant believers, we're you know, high-fiving Luther and his 95 theses, but a lot of that was based on him scratching his head, deconstructing his faith and going, there's something amiss. There's something missing. I don't have the whole story and I have questions. And really that's what he was hoping to have was a conversation. He wasn't trying to start a whole new thing. But anyway, as we discussed in our episode on how we got the Bible, the canon was affirmed by the African church tradition. It's not true that Christianity is the white man's religion, nor is it true that Africans were not Christians before the transatlantic slave trade. No one was doing us a favor by bringing us here to be exposed to a false gospel and heretical form of Christianity that allowed people to own other people made in the image of God in such a cruel, cruel, evil way that chattel slavery became unlike any other slavery in human history. So how did the early church respond to heresy? Sometimes it was, it was a little rough. Sometimes it was a little harsh. Um, people got kicked out. They got excommunicated. Um, you know, we see that in movies, uh, in television uh, today. But Augustine didn't agree with that option. He taught and believed that we can address false teaching with love and understanding. And, uh, and so one of the things that that he talks about is the invisible church. And I was actually standing at, uh, standing outside the other day looking at my garden. And my garden, it's a little pathetic. I'm not a real, well, I, I guess I'm a real gardener. I will not diminish my efforts. However, and I enjoy it, I, I plant seeds and sometimes I get a little overzealous and then I forget what seeds I planted. And so I've got this variety of flowers and vegetables and herbs growing all in the same garden. But I also have weeds. And as things are coming up before the flowers bloom, I can't tell the weeds from the flowers. And I thought about that in the context of Augustine's work, City of God, 
where he discusses love of self versus love of God and love of eternal versus temporal things or earthly things. Um, and he talks about it in this, the sense of the uh, permixta ecclesia, where he looks at Jesus's parable of the wheat, wheat and the tares, um, and the idea that you know you're going to have weeds in your garden, but it doesn't mean your garden is less beautiful. You're going to have people in the church who are not always uh, on the full understanding of the gospel or living it out fully, but we have to allow people to that opportunity to grow. But as church leaders, we have to manage that um, that tension because ultimately it all happens with the final judgment. So, and that's one of the things that Augustine talks about, and I'll talk about it a little bit more in a moment, but, but let's t- uh, take a moment to read the passage that Augustine references in City of God, um, where he links love and unity in and addresses that what Jesus when Jesus is talking in Mark chapter twelve verses thirty and thirty one. Now I want to read the passage starting at verse twenty eight because and going to verse uh, thirty something thirty four because you know I'm a big fan of making sure that we read the whole context. But Jesus is is explaining the commandment here. But if you think about how, if you've ever tried to explain something to your kids or to a coworker and you ask them to say it back to you in their own words, that's part of the process of teaching. It's part of the process of discipleship. Um, I've shared something with you. What do you think this verse means? You know, that type of thing. Jesus was a master teacher. And a lot of what Augustine did, he modeled, obviously, off of Jesus. Loving God and loving our neighbors is more important than the stuff you think you're doing for the church or for God. And so the church reflects the human condition. Um, Augustine writes, we're always looking, uh, always looking, always working towards holiness and purity, but we won't be separated until the final judgment. And I think that that's something to point out even for the church today. Yes, we have QAnon uh, members in your church. Yes, there are people who uh, don't fully believe in the supernatural aspect of uh, Christianity. Yes, there are going to be people who may believe something that's not completely true, but it doesn't mean we toss them out, that we love them and we focus on unity and let God be the final judge. We just keep pushing. We just keep teaching. We keep discipling. We keep loving. So here's what, what it says here. Uh, here's the passage. Uh, the passage is head, uh, titled The Greatest Commandment, so found in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. Verse 28 reads uh, accordingly. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Verse 32. Well said, teacher. The man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So that's uh, verse 34, uh, Mark chapter 12. So what's important about this? What are are we saying here? Augustine focuses on teaching through love and understanding. Um, Augustine set things up in his environment in his church so that it was a learning community. I'm currently teaching on the book of Titus in our Bible study right now. And the in, in, in that letter, in Paul's letter to Titus, he's giving him instructions on setting up a teaching community. This is what the early church modeled. This is what churches today should be modeling. Um, what does a teaching community look like? What does a community filled with mentorship and love and unity look like? And out of that, we're able to follow the great commandment. Augustine promoted lifelong learning as a means to disciple and to be discipled. And so here we are with lessons from the response of the early church to the culture around them uh, that contributed to forming the foundations of Western Christian theology. Responding to the dominant Roman and pagan culture of his time, Augustine developed spiritually based responses to cultural influences similar to those faced now in our modern version of Christianity. And so, as we continue today, I want to explore how his responses to a few of the heretical views uh, that were going around at the time and paganism in general and other cultural influences can inform a strategic response to similar concerns facing the church today in America. Augustine lived and served the church in North Africa. He was born in 354 in a small town in Roman in the Roman North African province of Numidia. He was educated to be a Latin rhetorician and was employed for a time as a communications instructor before his conversion to Christianity. In his role as Bishop of Hippo, he participated in the councils of Hippo in 393 and Carthage in 397, where the New Testament canon was initially affirmed. Um, Athanasius is, is a contemporary of Augustine. He was part of that as well. Augustine believed that the canonical scriptures were inspired, authoritative, and the basis for sound doctrine. He's not looking outside of the scriptures for doctrinal beliefs. This is something that eventually changes in the in Roman Catholicism that's a departure uh, later on in history. But for Augustine, he lived out the message from Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. It's beneficial for us today to study and learn from how Augustine chose to respond so that we might respond well ourselves to the false teachings that we encounter today. So the 5th century church benefited from a long tradition of Christianity in North Africa, Northern Africa. Traditional trade routes throughout the Mediterranean region, along with roads built by the Romans, allowed for a natural evangelism to take place, finding homes with the early church fathers like Cyprian and Augustine in Africa. There were several major heresies in the early church that the church fathers had to work diligently to expose and address both internally and externally. So in this context, a definition, a working definition for heresy is a willful propagation of a position or perspective that runs against the grain of apostolic teaching and tradition. When we talk about apostolic teaching and tradition, that is what formed the canon when we think of, of, of the scriptures of the Bible. The 
early apostles, the the disciples of Jesus, the first apostles, upheld their, that tradition. Um, when the scriptures were being written and inspired and being written, um, the letters from Paul, they were pretty quickly adopted and affirmed as truth. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about apostolic teaching and tradition. So anything that goes against that is, is considered heresy. In the 5th century, Augustine, in his role as Bishop of Hippo, participated in developing a theological practice to refute false claims in love and with clarity. He specifically addressed maniacism, donatism, Pelagianism. We talked about Pelagian a few episodes ago. Augustine did this in his sermons, his letters, writing, and church councils. So we are left with a, a great volume of work by Augustine that kind of works through his thoughts and his theology on that. After, uh, the African church councils pre-Nicaea stood boldly against civic religious idolatry. What is civic religious idolatry? Um, civil religion. Anytime that we put flag before Jesus, anytime we put something uh, before God is idolatry. Tertullian believed that heresy amounted to any teaching that is not supported in scripture. So by the time Tertullian comes along in the third century, he's like, listen, if it's not in scripture, we're not doing it. It's, it's, you know, we're not going to go with that. Cyprian developed a conciliar process based on scriptural study that eventually became the foundation of the ecumenical movement, helping believers with cultural differences find unity based on scripture, not philosophy. Again, philosophy, Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, Plato, Aristotle, there's value in that, but what Cyprian, <clears throat> what Cyprian was focused on in his time was creating a process, a uh, hermeneutical process, what we would call a hermeneutical process now, a biblical interpretation process, so that believers with different cultural differences could find unity based on scripture, not on whatever else was floating around in the air at the time. And so by the 5th century, Augustine benefits and continues um, these new traditions as Bishop of Hippo, commanding a knowledge of biblical languages, Greek and Hebrew, geography, philosophy, the sciences, and building upon his years of training and success in rhetoric, Augustine was able to explain the scriptures in proper context to correct alternative narratives of the gospel message. It was his educated perspective that influenced his initial concern that Orthodox Christianity was less sophisticated than other religions, and thus he fell into his uh, into a false belief system. In fact, uh, Manichaeism was something that when Augustus, uh, shortly after Augustine's conversion, he believed in. It's a false teaching. But here's the beauty in looking at Augustine's life. Even St. Augustine had to deconstruct his faith at some point. Um, after his conversion to Nicene Christianity in 386, however, uh, Manichaeism continued to be an enduring threat in Augustine's view. So once he got over that and he figured out, oh, I'd this is not true Christianity. I'm, I, I didn't get the whole story here. Um, he continued to find a way to to respond to that. And for him, his deconstruction and helping others, uh, discipling others, begins with this second conversion that he has. And he talks about it in his uh, book, Confessions, um, and a little bit in his book, City of God. In his second conversion, 
he realizes that this version of the gospel is not only incomplete, but incorrect. And so he strives to fix his outlook and deconstructing his faith. He shares his development and journey away from Manichaeism in his confessions and his summoned City of God. The challenge with this particular heretical teaching was that not only had Augustine followed it initially, it did not follow the truth in apostolic tradition or scripture. The reasoning behind this teaching was that creation's role was confused and treated equally with the creator. Now, I want to pause for a moment and explain that and unpack that just a little bit, because there are people now who worship creation and not the creator. We should be worshiping the creator, God of of the universe, God who created the heavens and the earth, God who created all of us and everything, and not uh, worshiping the creation, the things that that God created. Augustine he very easily in this time, not having spent a lot of time studying scripture or not having been discipled well, for a period of time, he believed this. He he believed this false gospel. But as I said before, a lot of times a false gospel isn't so much that it's a false gospel as it's a half truth. And though therefore it is a false gospel. But he deconstructs that and his faith goes on. He grows from it. So the question of the next heresy that Augustine has to deal with is the Donatist controversy. Basically, what was going on is that people who had lapsed in their faith during the period of persecution, uh, many of us are, uh, many of you may be familiar with, uh, there were times when Christians were persecuted for their faith. And so uh, you think of like the movie Gladiator and, and where, you know, the Christians were uh, in the stadium with the lions and being killed for sport and everybody was, you know, it, it, it was entertaining. People who did not stand up for their faith in that time, who it's considered they lapsed, like they, oh no, I'm not a Christian because, you know, who wants to get eaten by a lion? This was a big issue. It's cons- it's called historically the Donatist, Donatist controversy because there were people who lapsed in their faith, but still went to church. They were baptized. They were ordained. Um, but they didn't necessarily, you know, they didn't stand up. And so there were folks in the Christian circles who were like, okay, if you didn't stand up for Jesus, you're out. That's it. We're not going to, um, you, you have to be rebaptized because it didn't count before because you weren't really Christian. And so this was, a, this was an issue. So historically under persecution, the church leaders responded in ways that were considered shameful by some. And Augustine's approach was to respond with scriptural focus on love and specifically what Jesus taught. Well, what did D- Jesus teach? In Matthew chapter 13, Augustine references uh, Jesus saying, the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds... You may uproot the wheat with them. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 28. And so the Donatists were strictly focused on purifying the church, to which, you know, getting rid of the people who had lapsed during that time. Augustine was saying, no, that's an unrealistic objective. And I talked about this a few minutes ago. He used the example of the wheat and the chaff as he described a mixed society or permixta ecclesia drawing from Matthew 13. While the Donatists seem focused on a limited view of you will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, Augustine believed that the desire for a pure church in the present age can tempt the genuine believer to leave the church in a misguided 
misguided quest for holiness and purity. Out of this controversy, Augustine's doctrine of original sin was formed. You can read more about the Donatist controversy um, on your own, but here's here's the, the thing that applies to us today. There are people who won't go to church anymore because there are people in the church who are problematic. And I get that. You don't want to be in a place where you don't feel safe. But there are plenty of other churches. Like we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater is the saying that that folks use. And, And Augustine is saying the same thing. We don't have to expect everybody in your church, in your church community to be holy and pure all the time. Like in we're all on a journey. We're all on a path. Uh, we're at different phases in our spiritual growth. And so Jesus will figure that out later for us. He will do the final judgment. It's not up to us. So don't pull up the weeds in the garden to get it in, inadvertently disrupt the foundation or roots of a flower that's supposed to be there. Another heretical teaching that became popular enough to require a response from Augustine and the church resulted from Pelagius. Remember, we talked about him a few weeks ago. Uh, Pelagius believed that Augustine's confessions were too extreme in the idea of original sin and suggested that all people were inherently good. And if they do good works in their lives, that will be enough. Augustine responded that Pelagius could not confirm his claim with Scripture, because that's not what Scripture says. Augustine argues that Scripture does not back up Pelagius' idea that uh, that only the grace of God helps humans to choose to do God's will. He drafts personal letters to the Pope in Rome, Innocent One, and the Bishop of Jerusalem, as well as a letter on behalf of the African bishops to put forward his position of orthodox beliefs against Pelagianism. Augustine knew that it was what it was to be a pastor and to deal frequently with his parishioners' struggles with the dynamics of temptation and sin. Augustine's clear appeal to both an exegetical system developed by earlier church fathers and church leadership in Rome and Jerusalem demonstrates his objective to deliver agreement in orthodox challenges to heresy. I want to pause a moment there because Augustine focuses his efforts. He looks to leadership uh, not just from his standpoint in Alexandria, but he, or or Hippo, but he looks to Jerusalem and to Rome because at that time they were on equal footing. Rome wasn't leading the whole church yet. Pelagius desired to combat any tendency with the Christian community to excuse their sinful actions because of a deficit in human nature itself, to which Augustine argues that disobedience is the consequence of sin, not the cause of sin. His response carried through the Council of Carthage in 411, where Pelagianism was convicted by the church. It was not uncommon well into the 5th century that erroneous schools of thought developed and emerged with small and large followings. Interestingly, many of the erroneous philosophies in some shape or form continue into the 21st century, where it becomes necessary to look toward the past lessons from Augustine in order to respond adequately. How do we respond to false teachings today? We see that You know, there are people, and I know people that that will say this just like Pelagian, you know, I'm a good person and that's all that really matters. But that's not what scripture actually says. So if you're basing your beliefs off of scripture, then go with scripture. If you're going to base your beliefs off of Pelagian, um, well, knock yourself out. So responding to false teaching today, though, we can learn how to respond to heresy and false teaching in the Western church today from Augustine's method of teaching in community, relationship, love, and soundly scriptural practice. 
Unfortunately, some of the same heresies Augustine fought against have been revisited upon the church today. Donatism is resurfacing as Protestants and Roman Catholics deal with controversies within their organizations, and we can see hints of the pagan Roman emperor cult through nationalism and extreme patriotism. We are also seeing Pelagianism rebound through the postmodernism and universalism. So how does the church today respond? While we are not under empirical authority, there is much to learn from the way the early church leaders worked inside and outside the political power structures of their time. Practice in worship, prayer, and the many relationships of life must always remain one piece. The idea that worship, prayer, and our relationships with others are lived out together become our theology that informs our orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Augustine modeled the community life as an engaged pastor and church leader in his time. His writings provide valuable insight to how we can respond in love grounded in scripture. Today, we have groups within the church who believe that the church should put uh, should be pure now and not be working towards sanctification. Augustine's response to the Donatists took into consideration the pastoral perspective of spiritual growth in the lives of his parishioners. Augustine maintained that the church will always be a permixta ecclesia, a mixed society of both genuine and false believers. He references scriptures found in Matthew chapter 3 and 13. Augustine concedes that perhaps we should as well. For the present time, the city of God and the city of this world are interwoven and intermixed and await separation at the last judgment. As we follow the teachings and writings of Augustine, we cannot help but notice that he writes within the context of his culture. His education in rhetoric and philosophy is apparent in how he structures his thoughts and messages to his parishioners and recipients of his letters or audiences of his writing. In fact, City of God was intended to be embraced by both pagan and Christian audiences. Not unlike pastors today who write books that are from a Christian worldview, but they're celebrated by people outside of Christianity as useful teaching. And that's what Augustine did with City of God. Neoplatonism as a systemic philosophy influenced the organization of Augustine's communication through his sermons and writings. Likely unbeknownst to the thinkers themselves, it is evident that the late antiquity and medieval theologians drew upon a foundation of Platonic tradition. The framework Neoplatonism provided assisted Augustine with reaching those who might otherwise not be familiar with traditional Judaism or Jewish philosophy that makes up the scriptures of the New Testament. An example found in City of God of this type of language is, but the true and highest good, according to Plato, is God, and therefore he would call him a philosopher who loves God, for philosophy is directed to the obtaining of the blessed life, and he who loves God is blessed in the enjoyment of God. So today, churches, we have to consider insider and outsider language. Um, Augustine seems to prefer to utilize the outsider language to reach unbelievers. This is a model worth following in structuring modern arguments against false teaching. The use of the Latin vernacular benefited Augustine as a teacher to write contextually about how the syncretic system of the Roman religion was counter to the Christian ideal of exclusivity. 
As Roman religion was syncretistic and included Persian, Egyptian, and Phoenician deities on its pantheon, while also venerating the Roman emperor, the exclusive claims of Christianity were certainly repulsive to the imperial cult. We see this syncretistic value system today in American patriotism infused in some of our churches. The events planned around the 4th of July, uh, including gospel concerts masked as evangelism and outreach, but probably not clearly defining the gospel message separate from American elitism. While patriotism has its place in society, American Christians have confused many non-believers with a trend to blend patriotism with Christianity. The reaction of the church today can be modeled after Augustine's educational approach to studying scripture. In early Christianity, the principal educational challenge facing the church was twofold. One, how to deal with the legacy of Jewish thought, and two, the challenges arising from the encounter between Christianity and Hellenic philosophy. In Augustine's worldview, education via friendship and community was important. Influenced certainly by the monastic traditions, he set up his church in Hippo to function similar to a monastery. It was in this environment that Augustine was able to write and study and discuss, but most importantly, disciple future church leaders. There he offered a holistic synthesis centered on the study of sacred scripture, developing a congruency of learning that accessed the Jewish scriptural tradition and the Neoplatonic philosophical style of learning through inquiry. Inquiry. As a result of his emphasis on education through community and discipleship, Augustine's biographer noted that as many as 10 church leaders came from Augustine's clerical monastery. Augustine's ecclesiastical career is most fully understood as an extended teaching moment that synthesized the best of Christian thought and Greek philosophy and is mediated, although not exclusively, through his trilogy of writings on Christian education. Uh, one is called On the Teacher on the catechizing of the uninstructed, on Christian doctrine. And then in his work, Confessions, Augustine ponders how we learn and retain information. And he says this, Wherefore we find that to learn these things, whose images we drink not in by our senses, but perceive within as they are by themselves without images is nothing else but by meditation, as it were, to concentrate, and by observing, to take care that those notions which the memory did before contained, scattered and confused, be laid up at hand, as it were, in the same memory, where before they lay concealed, scattered and neglected, and so the more easily present themselves to the mind well accustomed to observe them. Toward the end of Augustine's life, he set the example of reformulating and revising his beliefs as a disciple who makes disciples through his work called retractions. What I find interesting about his work, retractions, is again, he's constantly deconstructing his faith. He's constantly looking back over his life going in what he said and how he uh, presented the gospel and how he taught. He engages people in his church community in this way. So in retractions, he says, 
For a long time, I've been thinking about and planning to do something which I, with God's assistance, am now undertaking because I do not think it should be postponed. With a kind of judicial severity, I am reviewing my works, books, letters, and sermons, and as it were, with the pen of a censor, I am indicating what dissatisfies me. The early church leaders had to focus on explaining theology, orthodoxy, and orthopraxy to an audience unfamiliar with many of the key ideas of Christianity, so much so that it was completely counter-cultural. Using the familiar language of their culture, Augustine was able to connect ideas and that have stood the test of time and are well worth discussing today. One of the most useful ideas, in my opinion, from Augustine is the idea of being a lifelong learner. That's really what No More Silos is all about. Lifelong learning. I learned something new. I'm sharing it with you guys. Being teachable is a key component to discipleship. In the Western church today, we have the extraordinary opportunity to learn from Augustine's style of leadership, discipleship, education, and pastoral care that demonstrates how to respond effectively to false and heretical teaching. Augustine was profoundly pastoral and altruistic in his responses to heretical teachers of his time. And we can learn that diffusing heresy or false teaching in the church today should take the approach modeled by Jesus, as well as Augustine, that a pastoral or relational connection will encourage a truthful worldview over fire and brimstone or condemnation. Augustine believed we have not truly understood the Bible until we have applied it in such a way that our love for God and neighbor is evident. So thanks, everybody, for joining me today on No More Silos. Follow me on social media at Cultural Christianity. You can find me on Instagram and on Facebook at Cultural Christianity. Shoot me an email to podcast at ericasantiago.com if you have questions about the podcast or comments or ideas for future episodes, questions, things that you have a question about, wondering about the silos of information on a particular topic. I'm happy to address that. So thanks again for joining me today. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day.